when we enter into a workplace, we're not leaving any of the experiences that we've had our entire lives, let alone just that morning on our way at the door. So it's necessary that people who manage other people have an understanding of the complexities and the nuances as much as they can of people who are different than them, whose experiences are not the same. Hey, Ayushi, how you doing? Good. How are you, Caesar? I'm doing great. You know, here we are. It's been, what, seven weeks of shows? Seven weeks. And now we're getting, moving into the eighth week? Yeah. Right. Well, and this is actually really, I'm really excited about this one. I know this is a friend of yours, Danielle DeRoyder-Williams, mm-hmm. who happens to be, you know, a senior community development specialist for the uh, city of San Francisco. She's amazing. But I'm, first of all, I always love someone who actually gets to live in San Francisco, so I like her for that reason to begin with. <laughs> I think she technically has her apartment in Oakland. Okay, but... <laughs> I love her even more then. <laughs> That's the best of both worlds. But uh, no, in reality, it's just, it's great to have her here. Thank you so much for being here with us. Yeah, happy to happy to be here. And how did you guys get to meet each other? How did you know each other? We actually met because she's the founder of an organization called the Justice Collective that does racial trainings across the city, and I attended one of these trainings. It was amazing to watch her in action. That's really cool. So, Danielle, I'm sorry for making you look, you know, just sit over there and pretend like you don't exist <laughs> while we talk about you. In the third but, person. <laughs> in the third person. But, uh, yeah, you know, I noticed that, you know, your work is really around social equity. That's what you do for the planning department in you know, San Francisco. And I'm just like, how did that come about? You know, <laughs> it's not a thing you see. And, you know, you can go to a lot of planning departments around this country. And that's yep. actually not one of the names on the office doors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, and I wasn't hired to do that work. I was hired to join a team of community development specialists who were focusing on, and this is a this is an equity, this is a racial equity strategy, but it wasn't specifically called that, to really shift our approach to planning from kind of the top-down approaches to relationship-rooted solutions and and relation and solutions surfacing from from our relationships with community particularly in communities experiencing rapid displacement gentrification bayview hunters point for one uh, chinatown the tenderloin the mission all of these communities of color in san francisco are experiencing a lot of demographic shift and, and economic shift as we all know and what became abundantly clear pretty early on in that role is that one of the primary complaints and challenges that community has with the planning profession and the planning department, specifically in San Francisco, but this is pretty consistent, I would say, across many government agencies, but also many kind of planning departments around the country, is just a lack of, one, a deep and meaningful understanding of the nuances and challenges that people of color are facing, two, the competencies to to deal with that and recognize what adjustments need to be made in in our community engagement strategies. But even beyond that, being able to really center those unique needs when creating our policy, our processes, the permitting of different developments. Are we thinking about and centering marginalized communities and what the impacts of these things are going to have on them? And that just isn't happening across the board. There are people who are individual advocates, you know, who are thinking about these things, but it's not like a part of their job description to consider racial equity on this project, right? So that being surfaced as 
as a need early on, I saw an opportunity to push our department to do something about it. I enjoyed kind of a unique positioning inside the agency wherein, I, you know, like I said, I was a part of this new team and we were still self-defining and the director of the division at the time who had created this team was really, really took his mentorship of us seriously and really wanted to create the space for us to do the work as we saw fit and was a huge champion for not only our team, but for me as an individual in creating space for me to kind of redefine the parameters of not only my work, but of what like good leadership looks like inside of an institution like that. So I was able to say, hey, <laughs> uh, this is a problem and here's some potential solutions. And one of those was for us to start doing racial equity work first by building the capacity of a core team of us to do it, but then that leading into a larger initiative. So that's kind of how it got started, but it certainly was something that had been on the minds of people and the tongues of people for a while, but but no one had really like pushed them to do it thus far. And then you guys made it a formal team. Yeah. So 12 of us went through a year long wow. training. With, that's significant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we went once a month with some work in between to trainings that the Government Alliance on Race and Equity had created for specifically for municipal participants in the region. And then they also had a regional one down in, in Southern California. And it was the first year that they had done this cohort. And we all went and, you know, some of the stuff for me personally wasn't new because I had had training in it previously. Racial equity was the space that I had been working in, you know, by a function of my nonprofit work. But for others, it was new. And and, the, and then there was the newness for me of learning about government because I had just started. So I brought up this this opportunity within four months of joining the department. So I had just got <laughs> my time there. Wow. Uh, didn't really know much about government at that point, but was able to, my only lens through which I was learning about it was through this racial equity lens because we started this so early on, which was really exciting and unique, I think, entry point into, into that, yeah. Wow. Now a whole bunch of questions come up for me uh, <laughs> about doing this. And I want to actually, you know, oftentimes when we talk about, I know in conversations we've been involved in here, both on this, on our series, but, you know, just even here at MIT and around, you know, people think about these racial equity issues and they think about them in relationship to the work with the community. But what I'm hearing you say is that there was internal work the planning department was doing around this to really understand how it can develop the competencies to actually engage in that work with the community. Is that right? Yeah, it's not only how to engage with work in the community, it's also thinking about the planning department as a workplace. Mm. Yeah. So as we wow. know, yeah, planning is not a particularly diverse field, especially considering planners are working in government. There's many more people of color in functions like, you know, Department of Public Works or mm. even transit, right, if you look at the numbers. So planning itself as a profession is not especially diverse. Planning in San Francisco is also not especially diverse. It's, it's certainly not representative of of the city's demographics, although those are changing and probably maybe more like the city's demographics <laughs> over time. Um, but in addition to that, the way in which people of color experience the workplace 
varies too. And, and that wasn't just a hunch. That's something that as a part of the earlier steps in our racial equity work was proven through our survey. Our survey of staff revealed statistically significant differences between, you know, perception of fairness by folks of color versus versus white folks, perception of commitment from leadership, right, to racial equity in leadership versus non-leadership positions. So, so there were a number of different data to back up the anecdotal experiences, because oftentimes, unfortunately, that's not considered to be enough. And I'm not saying just in the planning department, just generally in this work. Yes. Mm-hmm. We had a number of data points that we could then share that emboldened us and legitimized the need to both address the way in which we engage externally. So what's the what's the application and the practicality of, of this framework? But also, what does it mean to be a workplace that centers equity, that considers and take steps towards improving that workplace experience for underrepresented folks, which are, in this case, folks of color in the department. So for mm-hmm. us, it was both and. We actually decided to start with our internal work first versus the practical application externally. Wow. I mean, I took a class at the business school last semester, and it makes me think about, you know, like you're talking about your your manager being, you know, open to feedback and really taking mentorship seriously. And it makes me think about how even the ways in which we understand management and workflows and internal sort of healthy organizations perhaps are so skewed by the way that non-people of color experience the workforce. <laughs> white, white people? <laughs> yes, that's, uh, yeah, that's right. the other way to say it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Exactly. Quite precisely. (laughs) And I just hadn't thought of, I mean, the way that you just, you put it so simply and it's, it's so obvious and yet so powerful to hear said out loud, which is, you know, the way people of color experience the workforce is so different. And I personally, excuse me, know that to be true. I know among coworkers, but I don't know that that informs the way in which trainings or competencies or sensitivities are, are really addressed. Yeah, so you're exactly right. This particular division head was actually white, which is one of the reasons why I think we were able to cover as much ground as we were mm. in in pushing for the effort because him championing it uh, legitimized it, and 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 him championing me championed it's like a whole other thing, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Like that that legitimized it in a way as well. But to your point, the reality is is that when we enter into a workplace, we're not leaving. Any of the experiences that we've had our entire lives, let alone just that morning on our way at the door, right? So it's necessary and it's important that people who manage other people, people who are colleagues of other people, so that's literally everyone with inside an organization, has an understanding of the complexities and the nuances as much as they can of people who are different than them, whose experiences are not the same. And that oftentimes comes with proximity, right? But if as a result of our many policies that keep our communities segregated, if you have not had the opportunity to grow up with people who are different than you, which the majority of white people do not have that experience, your ability to relate and understand and on deep and meaningful level, people who are different than you is limited, right? Practical implications of this, right? Had a conversation with a woman, a colleague, coworker, and she's like, why don't you ride your bike to work? 
<laughs> big bike advocate. And she's like, why don't you ride your bike to work? And there are a number of reasons why. But one of those reasons why, if we want to get like real specific, is I live in East Oakland, which is really far from San Francisco. I live in East Oakland because it's the only place I can afford to live. I live in East Oakland because I don't have intergenerational wealth that allows me to live closer even to downtown Oakland. I live in East Oakland because I'm a single person. And if we, you know, we want to get real specific, Black women are the least coupled group in the country. So me not being partnered and not having the opportunity to share resources with a romantic partner, right, or even a husband or a domestic partner, is actually informed by my identity as a Black woman. It is impacted by my identity as a Black woman. The chances of that are lower, right? So by the very virtue of who I am, there are so many domino effects as to like why I have to live where I live, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Add on to that, and this is where it gets really deep, (laughs) I, I have chronic pain, right? So then we have the intersection of my identity as a Black woman with a, an invisible disability, right? That invisible disability was not treated with as much seriousness as it would have if I was a white person because of issues in our medical system around the ways in which the perception of Black people's, uh, how, how we feel pain is inequitable, right? There are literal studies out of Johns Hopkins where physician residents are like, no, 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 Black people's pain threshold is higher, right? These are current, this is current studies. So when we layer all of these factors on top of each other, I'm sitting in traffic for an hour and a half before I even get to the office. And what does that do for my mental health? What does that do for my physical health? How does that affect my ability to show up fully, let alone show up on time or at the same time as my colleagues who may have a shorter distance to get to work? So I had a direct supervisor who understood those things and we were able to have an agreement or an understanding of, you know, when and what my workday would look like as a result of these many nuances and complexities. But if the manager is not willing or open to consider that and if an employee doesn't feel empowered enough to advocate for themselves or feel that it's safe for them to advocate for themselves, then they're going to have a number of unmet needs and a number of challenges that are going unnoticed, that's going to affect their desire to stay with an organization in the long run. Mm-hmm. Wow. Deep, right? Yeah, it is. It <laughs> but is. just real. But just the facts. Yep. That's the thing, too. And the experience is unfortunately not unique, right? I mean, this is applicable exactly. to every person that might share identities across the board that you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, People are being displaced even further than I am. I'm lucky to be where I am. I got it in a good time, you know, into where I live. So there are folks coming from even further who have children, right, Uh, who have other other challenges. So but in the moment when that colleague asked me, why don't you bike to work (laughs) to her and she was a white woman, it was such a simple you know, like, oh, is your, like, tire flat on your bike? Or, like, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, are, you, are you afraid to ride? Or is it like, yeah. Know, what, yeah, what's in your way from doing this thing that is really so simple to do? Right. Like, you're such a bad planner because you drive, right? Because she didn't have an understanding of those nuances and complexities. And we actually had an opportunity. We got lunch one day, and I and I, and I talked about it. But that's also after our racial equity work had started. So yeah. the racial equity work in, in one, in, you know, in, in some ways opened up a space to have those informal conversations mm. through a new lens than 
was available or is easily accessible to to the broad range of folks with inside the department prior to kind of us kicking off that work. I'm just thinking to a conversation we had in another show with someone who was talking about the importance of these kinds of relationships yeah. and these connections, you know, in society, our ability to kind of get to know each other mm-hmm. and all the things that are in the way of that and how we have to kind of remove those. It was just kind of reminding me of that. You know, I was I was thinking of, though, about, wow, what you were able to do because you had this whole cohort of folks and you were able, you had a good manager in place who really kind of modeled good leadership themselves around these issues. And I'm thinking about, you know, well, you take some place like San Francisco or LA or New York or Chicago or Houston, and they're, they're kind of like, those big departments with a lot of planners that create opportunities maybe to have that. San Francisco is probably even a little more unique, but having gone through that, like what what could you say or what would you think or what advice would you give with someone who's, like we actually know a case of this, you know, they're in a department with maybe seven other planners and they're the only black person sitting there mm-hmm. about how do they move in that space? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. So I say this acknowledging a significant amount of privilege driven by my personality type, which is not risk averse, driven by probably an unrealistic uh, level of self-confidence. <laughs> <laughs> Although I haven't been proven wrong yet. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just looking, yes. at, looking at my track. Um, but, but, you know, to me, being an agitator is the only thing I know how to be. Mm-hmm. And not in a way where I'm raising things that can't be solved or making, you know, it's not about like venting or complaining or whatever. It's about like, yo, we're not our best selves right now. Here's how I think we might be able to get closer to that. Or we're not in alignment with our values as an organization if these are our stated shared values. And let's discover ways to better embody those. And with that in mind, I have adopted, and it has served me well thus far, uh, the approach that if people are not prepared to have the conversation that needs to be had, then maybe it's not a great fit for me to be there. Or if we're not ready to bring ourselves closer to to our values and, and we're not ready to do it now because there's it, it should be our highest priority, then it's time for me to go elsewhere where that's the case. And that the spirit of that is actually like when I was, it's funny. So my mom is white and I'm black. I'm, I'm, I'm half black. My dad's black. And when I was 16 years old, Alicia Keys was really popular <laughs> and she had braids. She had those braids with the, the, the designs in them. And so I did too. Everyone had them. And at the time I had a job at the mall and I was like, mom, I think I want to get another job. What do you think about that? And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's good. But like, you know, that if you're going to be looking for another job, you might want to take your braids down because people might not you know, might not hire you. And I grew up in Western Michigan. So, you know, she's right. It's possible. And uh, my response was at 16 years old, 
any place that isn't going to want to hire me because of my braids is not a place I want to work anyways. And she's like, you're right. And that standard is something that I've really tried to hold myself to and my employers to throughout my adulthood. And, and that came into play in the planning department as well, you know, around an email that I had sent when we were a few months into our racial equity work. So when Alton Sterling was murdered, um, mm. one of many uh, murders um, over the last several years, I woke up that morning having tried my hardest to avoid watching the video. But of course, it was all plastered mm. across Facebook. And it was, this was before you could like turn autoplay off on your timeline. Mm. Um, I got up at 5 a.m. and I sat down to write an email to to the entire department. At the time, it was around 230 people, and I was still on probation at the time. I hadn't yet reached my my six month point, so I was still temporary, technically. So this was risky, and I decided that I needed to say something. Luckily, we had the kind of umbrella of this racial equity work to point towards as to like the justification as if I should need one for mm-hmm. sending this message. But I was a- at least able to kind of frame it around, you know, we are undertaking this racial equity work. I want to share with you why it's so important for planners to consider police brutality in the mm-hmm. context of um, murder of another unarmed person of color. And we have our own example here in San Francisco. So in, in this email, I kind of listed out, you know, some examples as to why this is a problem and why it's relevant to our work. And one of the examples I was able to provide was Alex Nieto, who grew up in a predominantly POC neighborhood in San Francisco, who was hanging out in a park by his house, as he did often, and got into some sort of conflict. He was not the aggressor. With uh, with someone who had moved to the neighborhood recently, white person, and the police were called, and he was shot and killed. You know, to your point about San Francisco earlier, there's this presumption that because we're all progressives here, right, we're all, we all voted for Obama, we're all for, you know, mm. gay marriage, we're all for a woman's well, right some to... shade of blue. Yeah, yeah, right. that that kind of thing could never occur here, right, that, that we are the evolved elite. You know, <laughs> academics on the on the coast, and it's just not true, right? I've actually experienced far more microaggressions being in California than I ever did in Michigan, right? Um, so, <sighs> so tying it back to a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood that now has people there who do not have familiarity with people of color, who instead of de-escalating whatever the conflict was, or having a conversation, or just walking away, felt so entitled, and we've seen this happen over and over and over again in the news over the last couple of weeks, felt that calling the police was the appropriate Mm -hmm. response, which is a, can be a death sentence for people of color. And people know this, like this stuff makes national news. I don't believe that Permit Patty or Barbecue Becky didn't know. Right. Because the police have been a tool of control that white people have wielded since the abolition of slavery. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is a tradition. Like when we talk about white people, whether or not white, there's such thing as white culture. Like this is one of the characteristics of white culture. Right. Which is using, you know, law enforcement. So tying all this back to planning, 
what are the implications in these rapidly gentrifying neighborhoods and the cultural shifts that are happening? And what role can we take as planners in considering these challenges and nuances and why people of color are so adamantly opposed to it, why there's so much pain coming out of the Bayview, coming out of the mission, um, because it's experiences like this where we no longer feel safe in our own communities. And I provided links and resources because <laughs> you are supposed to do to make people believe you. <laughs> um, and I press send. Any good email, of course, has links <laughs> and resources. <laughs> uh, and I press send. And I press send it. Like wow. So. To 200 plus people. Yeah. Yep. Wow. I did. And I felt good about it. <laughs> and the response was overwhelmingly positive. Wow. And there were people who did not read or were not able to read the truth in it um, and instead hinged on, you know, whether or not it was anti-police sentiment, right? Mm. Whether or not I was against you know, my cousin's a police officer. And like, from a personal standpoint, yes, well, they're a tool of oppression too. But that's not what I said in my email. That's not what I was talking about in my email, right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, but of course, they didn't respond to me directly. It was then surfaced to leadership who had to then kind of address the email with me. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Uh, I think there's more to this story. But anyway, uh, <laughs> we'll let it go with that. So what it brings up for me is one of the last thing you said, which is, so what does all this have, you know, bringing it back to planning, mm -hmm. right? And this this question, I think, as we sit here really thinking about the question of what do people need to know? How do we build their capacity mm -hmm. to actually build more robust engagement processes that really pay attention to the kind of equity, different identities, so that we can build more inclusive processes, that we have to be intentional about that. And part of what I hear you saying that there's something that's really important about familiarity mm -hmm. in order to help people do that. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering what that means, though, like, and I'm, I'm not asking you to have the answer. I'm really just asking you to kind of think with us and with this idea about what does that mean in the context of places where it's not that that familiarity isn't available, but the pressure of work, the pressure of time, the pressure mm -hmm. of getting it done, mm -hmm. you know, is what people are responding to. And... What's enough familiarity? Mm. You know, what is it that familiarity allows you to be able to do that's transferable to other situations so that it's not about a, oh, I understand, or I've had some, I feel a little more comfortable around black people, but still, you know, I can't stand these other folks over here because I don't know anything about them. But, right. you know, I'm always struggling with this issue because for me, at some point, I think, yeah, we do need familiarity with everyone. We need to know that. And then at the same time, I think, wow, if that's what we need in order to get there, then we're never going to get there because never, we're never ever going to have everyone exposed to everyone. Mm -hmm. So what is it we're really trying to get at? What is it that familiarity enables in us? And then how can we provide that? Mm trigger that in others yeah. without having to say, well, and then you need to go. And then here's X, Y, Z. Yeah. Like follow, it's a checklist. Yeah. Right. Right. Because that doesn't really, I don't think ever the answer. 
Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So I think what we have to actually, the jumping off point for this is what is the, I've asked this question in, in trainings that I've done before with folks around implicit bias. How is it advantageous or how has it been advantageous or necessary for people of color to understand in a deep, meaningful way, white people, mm -hmm. right? Wow. It has been an absolute survival necessity, right. right, for people of color to understand white people. It has not been a necessity for white people to understand in a deep and meaningful way people of color, with the exception of being able to extract resources. So if we think about mm. colonization and other sorts of you know strategies to exploit people, right? Mm. So with that said, it's not actually about solely familiarity. It is familiarity that breeds and generates empathy, humanity, and the seeding of power. And that is the wow. gap that we're not actually getting to, is what does it mean for white people to actually seed, to care about and recognize the humanity of people of color so much that they're willing to give up power? Not entirely, mm. but to at minimum share enough power so that we can live, live in an equal and just society. We're heading in the wrong direction right now, which is scary for many mm -hmm. reasons. Mm -hmm. But to me, until we actually get to that point, which looks different now in, in the, our current situation wherein, because legally and as a function of a, of a somewhat more just society over the last several decades, white people are actually feeling quite disempowered, right? How do you get people who feel disempowered to give up power. Um, so that's a, that's a whole other, <laughs> other day. But to me, linking, linking together familiarity or relationship without a reallocation of resources that could be literal resources like reparations, that could be relational resources such as like access to sponsorship or, or mentorship. It could be sharing airtime in a conversation in a meeting. Right. So, so much of it is actually requiring white people to like get out of the way, intentionally amplify and like create space for people of color to have a seat at the table. And I don't know if that's the conversation that's being had, you know, across the board. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think it's I would say that it's not the conversation that's being had. I mean, in some places, yes, but generally across the board, no, that is not the conversation we're at. And one we really do need to be in. You know, I remember actually at the beginning of this, as we were talking, we were saying, you know, this is really, one of the things I've talked about, Danielle, is really about lifting up our stuff around healing. Yeah. Right? And part of what I'm hearing in this, part of how this connects to that for me is that I think in order to actually step into that space of empathy, into that space where you have a humanity, see the humanity in each other, and to be able to kind of share power, one has to heal some wounds inside of themselves yeah. in order to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And we had to figure out how to create those spaces that also yeah. allow for that. You know, that you were talking about this, I remember one other time you were mentioning this thing about people who work inside of bureaucracies, inside of government, you know, 
what is it that they need to feel their own humanity again, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a healing that needs to be happening there as well as in other places. And so there's a, mm. this may be one of the bigger issues in our society in some senses. How do we heal from the trauma of what we have done to each other <laughs> or what yeah. has been done to some and to others and what some have lost and right. thought they were going to have and didn't get and all mm-hmm. of that in order to move forward? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, like, white supremacy has hurt white people, too, right? And I don't mean that in the, like, oh, the poor white people way, but, like, in very real, there's this photo that Dr. Joy DeGroy puts up in some of her trainings of a lynch mob. Mm -hmm. And in the foreground, there's a little girl, a little white girl. She's probably seven years old, maybe. And behind her is the hanging body of a black man and she's smiling right Right. she's smiling at this (laughs) the scene behind her and she shows this to make the point that white supremacy has while it has dehumanized people of color and I'll say black people in the context of, of the U.S. In, in very specific ways, it has also disconnected white people from their own humanity. Mm. And to your point, until that is addressed, until there are beloved communities <laughs> popping yeah. up around the country, around mm. the world of white people deeply investing in redefining what white culture means, mm-hmm. right? Because right now, the characteristics of white supremacy culture are ones that continuously oppress everyone, right? To different degrees. Until they're able to step back and like redefine <laughs> what membership in this group means and doing that through healing, through connection, through brotherhood, you know, we won't be able to to move past it. And it has to be a critical mass of white folks too. And, and you know, to give you a very practical, like planning example and, and how we know that that's not happening. So if we think about required setbacks on houses, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and how I'll use the example of a place like Oakland or San Francisco, the, the required setback from the front yard is much smaller than it is for the backyard. So the, the idea is that the way that a, a city block will be structured is that your front yard is small and your backyard is very big. What this creates, or, or, or I'll start with what this is shaped by, uh, this notion of the American dream and owning your castle. And for white folks, that has translated into walking in the door the front door, closing it, and then your castle is everything behind your front door. So mm-hmm. you socialize in the backyard, you have a pool in your backyard, you spend time in your home. If we look at other cultural traditions, right, for a lot of Latino folks, you have your parties in the front yard, right? Everyone's invited. It's a block party thing. For Black folks, sitting on the front porch. There's a reason why there are like racial epithets associated with black folks, right? Spending time communally in the front yard. Well, if your yard, your front yard is small because white planners are determining what's desirable in designing a neighborhood, white supremacy is literally baked into land use in really deep and insidious ways. Having that 
level of conversation. Having that surfacing or pulling the wool off or putting another lens on to recognize the cultural differences in the way that we even socialize and the planning implications, right, is something that is only possible when people have done enough inquiry internally into themselves, how they were raised, how that relates to the larger culture, who's in the inner circle and who's on the outside of the circle, and then who's making decisions. Those magical ingredients, I think, are all necessary to create just a larger movement. I think incremental change is possible, but I think we have to kind of deepen our understanding or go beyond what we think is possible and actually figure out what we need to do that's necessary to create the change that we want to see. Really beautifully said. And, you know, for particularly in the field of planning, you know, it's it's really raising the issue of how conscious the field needs to be about dismantling the way it contributes, mm. right, the way in which yeah. it's been informed by kind yeah. of white supremacy and systematic racism. Mm -hmm. And then to be in the conversation about how to dismantle that. And yeah. dismantling that doesn't necessarily mean throwing everything away. Right. But it means revisiting everything. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. right? Yep. Absolutely. And affirm, yeah. Which is a really different kind of conversation. And, you know, as someone who teaches in a school of planning, I, I can say that's that's not the way conversations around kind of race and equity are structured, mm. right, inside the field, the training, the preparation, the educational program, they are in some sense, they're additive or supplements to the real work, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> As opposed to being, you know, the real work is how these things have gotten us to where we are in our field, and then how do we rethink where we are in our field, in our field in a different way, so that we can actually cast off this burden that's really keeping us all down. Mm. Yeah, we can't just be talking about it in our community economic development classes or our workforce <laughs> classes, yeah. right? It actually yeah, is what we do. <laughs> which is what we do. I mean, that was my yeah. experience in planning school, too. We were in our real estate development class, and she's like, why aren't people, if land is so cheap in downtown Inglewood, why are people not why are developers not building in downtown Inglewood? And everyone's like, oh, uh, location of transit. And I'm like, white supremacy? Like, what? Like, uh, <laughs> structural racism, you know, like structural racism is why people are not choosing to build there. Like, but, but she was like, didn't know how to respond to that because that's not the conversation that we were having in our pro forma right. class, but it is the one that we needed to have. So, you know, one of the things that I was really interested in, in the planning department as a part of our our racial equity strategy is what are the strategic partnerships or what are the requirements that planning departments like ours, and I think it's important that we do this in partnership with other planning departments, need to demand of the field that need to be prioritized to ensure that programs, planning programs, respond and prepare their students to meet, you know, the new needs of the field, which have not changed, but the conversation has evolved so that we can be more straightforward with it. I mean, we're dealing with the same stuff we were dealing with, you know, with with new neckties on, basically. But <laughs> and I, I think that there's a lot of power in thinking about how APA is exclusionary, and we could go on a whole other. I'm going to write a uh, open letter about That's the American Planning Association. Yeah, yeah the American yeah. Planning Association. Yeah. 
how exclusionary that particular professional association is. Planning departments, particularly major planning departments that, you know, folks really want to work in, like San Francisco and L.A. and others like that, and schools, right? And the accrediting uh, board kind of all can can actually come together and make a pretty powerful statement about what we really need in 2018, given what we're pushing up against. But as far as I know, people are maybe doing it off in silos if they're doing it at all. And that conversation hasn't been centralized in any one place. Commitments have not been made to the communities that need it most about how we as a field are going to evolve to meet those new needs. That's a space I'm really interested in cultivating. Had I stayed longer at the planning department, I probably would have tried to get that going next. I don't think it's too late for me (laughs) to take a role in that, but like that has to happen. And now, right? Well, not for this podcast, but I can say to you one thing, we're actually opening up that conversation in our department this year and really starting a whole process to really redesign from the ground up, really, what should a two-year program look like, given what the world is today and what it needs to be. And I'm part of designing that process, and I think it would be extremely important to have someone like you and some other folks inside of, you know, planning departments to talk about, look, this is what's happening on the ground. This is what we need people to be able to come Mm -hmm. prepared to do, because right now, most of that is still embedded in the old ideas of what folks do when they walk out the door mm. of of a graduate program. And, you know, in ours, some people go right into planning, but people go into other fields that are allied to planning. Mm-hmm. You know, they go into all kinds of things, but they're doing, they're bringing the same skill set, right, into these other spaces. Mm-hmm. And I think that skill set, if it's done right, doesn't matter where you land up because it's needed in so many places. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, it's interesting because my pathway to planning was actually, I I joined UCLA at their master's in Afro-American studies program. And planning to me was the opportunity to add some of the practical skills that I needed that were one interesting to me, but also that I needed to to be competitive at the time in 2008 when I was getting ready to graduate in the workforce, right? At the height of our recession. And I never thought I would work for a city. I was like, Mm-mm, cities are slow. Y'all are behind the times, y'all. And absolutely both the skills and the knowledge and theory and history that I learned in both the Afro-American studies program and planning have been such a perfect marriage for me, which is why I'm like a huge advocate for creating pipelines from ethnic studies programs into planning. It's like an untapped gold mine of people who have an equity frame, if their program has done it the right way, have an equity frame that would enrich our planning programs in so many ways, but those pathways are not necessarily there, right? Unless you as an individual create them. So yeah, I think that conversation is really- My hair is rising. I love that idea yeah, so much. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know we've kept you longer than we said we were going to, <laughs> and we've kept you, what, three times now? <laughs> Fine by me. I love talking to you. <laughs> but this has been absolutely wonderful. And Anything you want to say in closing? I'm just so grateful on a personal level to be able to call you a friend and very grateful that you've taken the time out now so many times to speak with us. So 
thank you, Danielle, really. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. And any last words you have for us? I don't know, man. Keep fighting. Um, <laughs> don't get dissuaded by by the news, you know, this week coming out of Supreme Court. I think mm. the only option is to keep fighting, right? So that's yeah. what I'm going to keep doing and an invitation to y'all to, to keep doing the same. So. Thank you. I accept thank that invitation. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, Daniel. All right. Thank you. Well, that was amazing. Yeah, I oh. know. I mean, we could have kept going, but uh, I know. You know, you got to stop somewhere. You know, <laughs> save more for other people. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. Just to, I feel like, hear how she embodied this value of ways of expression. You know, there are so many ways that I felt like just how she carried herself in their conversation, the way that she spoke with such confidence about her work and about her role in all of this work was powerful. It's always been powerful for me to hear. It's kind of why I look up to her. You know, she's just that much older in her career. And it's inspiring for me as someone who has not yet started in, you know, the planning world to understand how our own position and role and approach makes such an impact on the outcome that we get, whether it's within our office, which is something that she you know, mentions a lot about, or whether it's in the community as you're working to elevate these voices in the community. Yeah, you know, we talk about this whole you know, kind of design principle of you know, designing for multiple forms of expression. And, you know, I've always kind of mostly thought about it in terms of, well, you know, you're creating the container, creating a space for people who may speak a different language or people who may be a little shyer, or you're creating this, you know, just so that people feel comfortable communicating the way they do. Yeah. And what happened today, really in listening to Danielle, was to realize actually there's a way that we need to kind of honor our own multiple ways of mm. expression. And we need to be able to hold them yeah. and authenticate them. And that that actually models something for other people. Right. You know? Because we're complex people, right? right? And people who are involved in planning have to work with a very complex public. Right. And I think our ability to kind of show that, right? Yeah. That, you know, one, I can be, you know, very technically oriented, but I can also hold emotions and talk about them. I can also be soft-spoken when I need to, and I can speak with power when I need to. All of those things become a really important part of our own recognition that in order to be fully understand, we have to tap into our own whole range of expression. That's incredible. I, I don't know that I've thought before about individual authenticity right. being a sort of mirroring of this complexity in the public sphere. Yeah. And I think that's just an incredible way of almost aspiring to individual authenticity, right, is making sure that even within yourself, you're honoring the variety of needs and complexities that you otherwise have to learn how to cater to in your professional work environment. And it's doubly complicated for women and right. for people of color. Right. Right? Right. Because there are a lot of risk yeah. for owning your own authenticity. Endless amounts of risk. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think the way that she pushes through despite knowing all of those risks yeah. is what really stood out to me in, in our conversation with her. You know, I mean, she makes it so clear that she spent so much time being thoughtful about her own positioning and the way that she, as a result, can then take a colleague out to lunch and explain to this colleague why biking is not possible for her. 
you know, because of, you know, physical, albeit invisible disabilities, because of her being a woman, because of her being of color, because of so many other reasons that she goes through, she lays out for us. And even just the strength required to lay out these identities and how they impact her is a really powerful form of, of honoring these complexities that I think are often underheard of. Yeah, underheard of, and it's, it's, I don't want to say it this way, but I'm going to say it anyway. I want to say it's a gift she has, but I yes. think it's, it's also something all of us can learn to do. Oh, yeah. And I think anyone who's in this profession, who's planning, who's engaging the public, you know, the more you can work on that muscle yourself, the better you're going to be at it. Yeah. You know, so uh, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for introducing her to us and to our audience. Hopefully we're opening a broader world to her and to this issue. Thank you all so much for listening. This has been The Move at MIT. Please follow us along at themove.mit.edu and send us an email, themove at mit.edu. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.